as I was saying, am I on? Speakers aren't on. They can probably hear me if you were on the internet. But if you're here, if you're live, we have a problem. All right. Events coming up. September 8th through 11th is going to be a conference on Israel. So many people don't know what's going on, or if they do know what's going on, uh, it gets confusing. Some of the claims that you may hear people make at times, and you should have an answer for, is people claim, well, Israel's an apartheid state, or Israel is uh, practicing some form of uh, genocide, or Israel is occupying um, the uh, West Bank. And how do you answer those things? I mean, if you take them apart, look at them, uh, they don't really stack up. But what's the evidence? Because we, it's heard again and again and again. And if you have children or grandchildren, or you know anybody who may be uh, involved in any kind of uh, uh, education institution, they're going to hear these things, and they're going to be uh, something is set forth. So that's one of the things that will be taught and discussed at the conference. And this isn't just for West Houston Bible Church. Please invite uh, friends, anybody you know that's interested in Israel. Uh, John, that group that meets on, uh, you go to that group that meets on Monday night every now and then. We need to get information to them when we have the thing done, that Act America group. We need to invite them and some other groups. So uh, plan that as well as a men's camp out on uh, October the 15th. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not for I am with thee. Be not dismayed for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so that you can each make sure that you are in right relationship with the Lord and ready to study the word, and then I will open in prayer. So let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful for the opportunity to meet here this evening to study your word, to be reminded of your grace, your goodness, your plan, your purpose, and that when we look out on the many crazy and some horrible things that are taking place in the world around us, it is easy to get caught up in the deception of the world that things are just out of control, and we know they're not, but you're allowing the uh, outworking of human volition to take place. And we're seeing on evidence time and again not only the wicked evil of the human heart as a result of 
uh, licentiousness in this country as well as most of Western civilization is all moral, ethical, spiritual restraints are rejected. But we also see the horrors of religion, especially in uh, is the uh, rise of this Islamic uh, supremacist movement as they seek to conquer the West and especially conquer Christianity. And we understand from Scripture this is a manifestation of a conflict going back into eternity past, uh, beginning with Satan's rebellion against you. And that's how we understand this. And Father, we pray that as we study tonight, we can come to understand more our role as individual believers within this this uh, historic uh, conflict and how the decisions we make and the actions we take impact eternity. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. We've gone through the first three verses, and now we're beginning a study of verses 4 through 10. And this is going to take a little while to just very carefully work our way through this. Uh, and I want to do this in a, in, a, in a way that helps us understand this and not just blow through it very quickly where uh, somebody may say, well, that was interesting, but I'll never remember that. Uh, this is important, and, and it goes back, as I was pointing out last time, to understanding the, the thrust of what is being said in this epistle. Why is Peter writing to this group of people, and what is he saying to them? That's the primary focal point of interpretation, is what did the original author mean to his original audience, and what was he trying to, to communicate? And so we look at the, at the context of that. And then when we get down to this particular section in verses 4 through 10, we have to interpret it or understand it within that, that basic thrust of what's been going on. And one of the things that I've pointed out again and again, and we went through it in more detail last week, is that he's writing to a group that are Jewish background believers, and that has a, that's significant for understanding some of the things that he's talking about. And one of the things that he talks about is what I've titled this lesson, and that is living, living stones. And that's important because this is the only place in Scripture where we have this, this phraseology, but it is reminiscent of terminology that goes through the Old Testament, this imagery of a rock or a stone and how that impacts understanding. And the other thing that we ought to observe as we go through these is that every verse in this section is either quoting from an Old Testament passage or it's alluding to an Old Testament passage. And that is important because it helps us, again, or it reinforces for us the fact that he's writing to Jewish background believers. He's writing to those who have a firm grasp of, of the Torah, a firm grasp of the Old Testament. And so when he alludes to scriptures and he weaves these scriptures together, he's not talking to a group of Gentiles that would be ignorant of what is said in the Old Testament. So it reinforces that, and that's really important to understand the thrust of, uh, of this book. So contextually, I've gone through this many times, we have a series of commands uh, in, uh, from 1 Peter 1.13 down through 2.3. We have this series of commands, 
And that, under, that helps us to understand what his thrust has been, ultimately what he's, what he's saying to them, and we can apply this to us, is when you're going through difficulties, whether it's overt opposition and persecution, or whether it's just the, the difficulties of life because we live in a fallen world, that our only hope is in the gospel beginning with trusting Jesus Christ as Messiah, as Savior, and that God is in control, and then as a result of that, determining what we're going to do after we're saved and living in light of eternity. And that's the solution to any and every problem in life, uh, even though the on-the-ground solutions may take on different forms. Ultimately, that has to be uh, held within a f- biblical framework. So the first command was to rest your hope fully on the grace that is brought to you through objective thinking. Second thing, he says, to set yourselves apart to the service of God, that is, be holy for I am holy. Third, he says, we're to conduct our lives in fearful respect of God. Fourth, we're to love one another with integrity. Fifth, we're to crave the milk of the word. So in any of every situation, if we are following those five commands, then we know we are walking in the will of God. And if we're in fellowship, then we're doing it by the Spirit, and it has value for eternity. His conclusion comes back that this honorable con- conduct, doing these things by means of the Holy Spirit, will glorify God at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, it's important that when we look at the next section, when he begins the next section, in verse 11, he says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims. Those are terms that are loaded. They could be used of anyone, but they are particularly related to to Jews. So again, that shows that this has a Jewish background sense. Now, when we got into this section starting in verse 1, We saw that the command was given in verse 2 to desire the pure milk of the word, that it begins by removing these filthy clothes, these clothes that have been defiled, and that indicates that this is something that's done uh, through an act. It is done through confession of sin, but it is pictured as removing filthy garments. That's the idea of being cleansed. Uh, James uses the same imagery in James 1. Uh, Then in James uh, 4, he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, Um, purify your hearts. This is the same language and imagery. So first we do that so that we're prepared to study the word. So the primary thought there would desire the pure milk of the word. Why? So that you can grow. This section is focused on growing up. One of the things that you see in Scripture is every verse is either going to be talking about how to get justified, phase one, or it's going to talk about how to live the spiritual life, or it's going to be talking about uh, living in light of eternity. Phase one, phase two, phase three, every verse is talking about one of those. Peter is not writing to explain to people how to get to heaven, but to those who already understand how to get to heaven, how they should live in light of the um, in light of the terrible things that are happening in their lives and doing it in a way where they're living in light of eternity. Now, that's the background. And last time we came to the opening part of 1 Peter 2, 4, and 5, and 
I pointed out that as we get to this, we have language like a living stone. We have the language of being rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious. And we'll see more of this. But this is language that is directly taken out of the Old Old Testament and verses in the Old Testament. Verses like Isaiah 28, uh, 16, uh, use the term precious and chosen and, um, and the allusion there to a stone. And then um, verse 5, your living stones built up a spiritual house, holy priesthood. All these language goes back to the Old Testament. Now, I pointed out last time that when you study any book, you have to understand to whom it's written. And just as a quick review, we either have Peter writing to Gentiles, Gentile background Christians, which is a majority, how the majority of people take this. I explained why last time. And the why is because starting with the rise of anti-Semitism in the early church due to uh, allegorical and spiritual interpretation by 200 to 250, once this became institutionalized, uh, the church, as it were, the early church tried to rid itself of its Jewish origins. And because that was an embarrassment. And so you don't find anybody through the Middle Ages talking about this being written to Jewish background believers. But up through the uh, middle part of the second century, it's the primary interpretation. So there are those who take it as Gentile Christians, and the first way it's applied, I said, was in terms of replacement theology, that the church completely replaces uh, Israel and God's plan, and Israel is permanently set aside. The second way is to say, yes, it's it's generally, these verses are generally applied to the church, to church-age believers, but they do not permanently replace Israel as a church, and that's probably the dominant view, as I said last time. Then uh, we get to a second interpretation, that is that it's written to Jews, and again, there's two interpretations. The first is that it's written to Jews, Jewish background believers exclusively, and there really isn't anything there for Gentiles, for Gentile background believers. And then there's a view that I'm taking, that is that it's written to uh, the, the Jewish background believers that are the remnant. Paul talks about them in Re- Romans 11.5. They're the remnant. But Remember, Jews and Gentiles are equal in the body of Christ. There is still a historic and physical difference. Jews that are, whether they're saved or not saved, are still under the Abrahamic covenant, and there are certain things that probably accrue to them just because they're they're Jews. For example, the Abrahamic covenant says that those who God blesses, those who bless Israel, God will bless. And those who... um, those who despise Israel, God will judge. Right? Does that still apply today? Yeah. If that still applies today, then in some sense, the Abrahamic covenant still applies today. So if you're a Jewish, if you're Jewish, whether you're obedient to God or disobedient to God, whether you're spiritual, whether you're carnal, whatever your spiritual condition is, it doesn't matter God is going to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. So that is still in effect. So the Abrahamic covenant is very much in effect because it isn't related to personal justification or personal spiritual life. It has to do with their identity with, with Abraham. And so the sign of that covenant is, is physical circumcision for the male. 
And that would still be expected of any Jew, whether you're a Christian or whether you're a non-Christian, because you're still a Jew ethnically and a descendant, a descendant of Abraham. What? Okay, the, the circle stands for the church, all church-age believers. So I'm getting ready to go there. All in the circle are church-age believers. And they're all equally members of the body of Christ. They are part of the bride of Christ. And they receive all the spiritual blessings that Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, that apply equally to every believer, Jew or Gentile, bond or slave, male or female. Now, the second thing is that this Jewish background believers are a subset of the body of Christ. They are the Jewish remnant. And we have to understand that. But what we, and we, third point I made last time is what applies to the remnant because they're in the body of Christ or in the bride of Christ, they are in Christ, applies equally to the entire body of Christ. Let's say you're a parent and you have 10 kids and one of your kids is being a, a little bit disobedient and rebellious. And so you want to have a nice little heart-to-heart talk with that child and help them to understand that in your family that they just don't act or behave the way they're acting or behaving. And so you take them aside and you talk to them and you begin to explain all of the benefits and privileges that they have as being part of your family. Does that apply exclusively to them? No, it applies to the other brothers and sisters. But you're not talking to the other brothers and sisters. You're talking to that one child, helping them understand who they are and what they have because they're a member of your family. That is probably the best analogy I've been able to come up with for what Peter is doing here. He's talking to this one group and reminding them that that ethnically their spiritual heritage in Abraham provides them with a certain spiritual heritage, but it wasn't realized by virtue of their position in Israel because of the apostasy of Israel and rejection of Jesus as Messiah. But now that they are in the body of Christ, they are realizing those blessings above and beyond anything that was anticipated in the Old Testament And it's true for them as much as it's true for every other member of the body of Christ. Now, as I pointed out last time, one of the problems that has come along, and I'm not picking on Arnold. I'm not saying it this way that I'm disagreeing with Arnold Fruchtenbaum, that Arnold's a heretic or anything like that. People often misunderstand things like that. This is a very important issue, and there's a lot of discussion that goes on between different people trying to work through a clear and precise understanding of these things in, um, in in Scripture. And I think that in Arnold's commentary, and a lot, the reason I bring it up is because I know a lot of people, uh, I respect Arnold tremendously. I are tre- he's a tremendously productive, and he's accomplished a lot of things, and very, very insightful. But And I'm sure that if we had a conversation here, he might not say it in a way that it appears that he's said it in a couple of his uh, commentaries. But the point is that that if you emphasize 
that there are certain privileges and blessings that Jewish background believers have today in the body of Christ that Gentiles don't have, then it runs afoul of what Paul says in Galatians 3 and 1 Corinthians uh, 12, talking about the fact that in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, bond or slave. There's no spiritual distinctions. But that doesn't mean that if I'm talking to someone as a, as a Jew, that you can't remind them of what is part of their ethnic and historical heritage and how that's realized in a greater way in the body of Christ. And, and so I think that uh, you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, well, you know, it's overstated, so therefore that interpretation is wrong. We have to work it, work it through. And in the past uh, two or three weeks, I've had discussions with a lot of different pastors that you know, and we've all hit this at some point or another. Now, the thing is, some guys have not uh, really taught through verse by verse in First Peter. Others have. Others have just read the theology of it. It's always important to make sure that we don't read somebody and say, oh, that theology makes sense, and then go read it into the passage. And that's always the path to to perdition. And so we have to go through verse by verse and look at these particular issues. Another thing that happens is that uh, pastors come out of seminary, and during the first 10 or 15 years you're a pastor, or 10 or 12 years you're a pastor, you're probably teaching a lot more what you were taught in seminary, because as uh, Dr. Toussaint once said, he was hired to be a professor at Dallas right out of getting his doctorate. He said, I was a half a step ahead of the hounds. I was the fox, and the students were the hounds. He said, I got up every morning and threw up because I was afraid that they were going to ask questions that I wasn't, hadn't quite resolved yet. It takes time to work through these things and to go verse by verse through all these different, uh, different kinds of passages. And, um, and it's interesting that I know three uh, doctrinal pastors, I'm not going to mention their names, but we're all teaching Matthew, and I was talking to one this afternoon, and he just got into Matthew 21, and he, opposed to everybody else I had talked to, was wrestling through this in the same way and was coming to basically the same conclusions that I was coming to and had discovered some of the same things in doing background studies that I had come up with. So I knew I wasn't... Uh, he had no idea what I had taught on the passage. So I knew I wasn't just out in left field. But the, So we're going to understand this, but since this passage is it's loaded, every verse talks about the Old Testament, and every verse is applying what's in the Old Testament to these this audience. And how is that application being made? That's really the bottom line. And so... We're going to kind of work our way through this. So in these first two verses, which represent a a complete sentence or complete thought, and by the way, Peter's Greek is complex, and and it's really difficult. And uh, and that's, that's... not the easiest thing to work through because the the first couple of words that he uses aren't even translated into English, and it doesn't seem to make sense because he's in, in some translations are translated, uh, "You are coming," but the "you" is 
y'all are well aware of this. The you is a second person, can be second person singular, second person plural in, in English, but the pronoun that begins the verse in the Greek is a third person plural. These who. Well, you don't even see a these or a you in the New King James, but it's there, I believe, in the in the New American Standard. But the these that it's referring to is actually goes back to these babes who are growing, who have actually goes to the plural, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. That second person plural in verse 3 is the important word. So these, that is those who have tasted that the Lord is, is good, since these were coming, we'll get into the grammar a little bit more. So that's the idea. It's it's just difficult to work it through. And uh, the main idea, verse 4 is all of a participial phrase, and verse 5 states your main line, your main clause, are being built up a spiritual house. Okay? You're being built up. Now... You also have a problem here with the fact that a spiritual house is a singular noun, and it's in the nominative case, which means it is the it's a subject or a predicate nominative. I found in searching through the commentaries, only one commentary who who even has who even mentioned this, because the way everybody, including that guy who wrote that commentary. The way everybody translates it is either as an object or as an indirect object. But it's in the nominative case, which means it's the subject or it's a predicate nominative. But you don't have an equative verb there because the verb there is being built up. You have to have a an is or was or a were in there to have a predicate nominative. You know, you wonder what I do with my time during the day. So this is what happens. Okay, we'll get back to the exegesis there later on. I don't want to get too technical because I think we can understand it uh, without nitpicking the grammar. So he's saying basically the main line is you're being built up. Since, so that verse 4 is really, uh, you can, it makes more sense to translate the independent clause first and then the first, the verse four, second, you're being built up since you came to him as a living stone. He's describing what's happened. Uh, he's commanded them in verse two to desire the milk of the word so you can grow. And then he goes into this discussion and says, you are being built up. That's another picture of growth since the time that you came to him as a living stone. In other words, since you were saved. Now, you've often heard me say we have to begin with the end in mind. Sometimes it's helpful when you read a book, especially if it's a heavy book, to go read the conclusion before you read anything else so you know where the author's taking you. And uh, sometimes uh, that's important even in a complicated passage of scripture. So I want to start at verse 10 and just sort of as an overview back us up. Let's see where Peter's going in this section with all these heavy references to the Old Testament to understand the trajectory of his thought. The last thing he says in verse 10, he says, describing 
describing them, he says, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Does that sound familiar to anybody? If you look at that verse, it could be easy for somebody to say, oh, that's referring, they must be Gentiles because they weren't a people, but now they're the people of God. Well, actually, this phrase go and, and the concept of mer- obtaining mercy here goes back to the first two chapters in Hosea. Okay, so we go to Hosea chapter 1. Now, I'm going to turn there. Because as usual, when we, got, when we get these kinds of quotes, we have to think a little bit about the nature of what's going on. Now, Hosea writes in the late 700s. He's, he's uh, roughly at the same time uh, as, as Isaiah. He overlaps Isaiah a little bit. He began earlier than Isaiah, but their, their, ministries, uh, their ministries overlapped. And he's working primarily in the, uh, he's been working, he begins in the northern kingdom, and uh, the northern kingdom went out in 722, and Hosea's ministry, or his life, ends about 710. And Hosea is one of the strangest books in the scripture, is because uh, he is a, well, his life ends at 710, but his ministry ended before they went out under discipline. Um, because God commands him to marry a prostitute. And he, so he's marrying a prostitute, and he's going to be exhibiting a love for that prostitute who's unfaithful to the marriage covenant as a picture of God's faithfulness to Israel even when Israel is unfaithful to the covenant with God. Now, we're not going to get into all the things with, um, uh, that deal with this, but he tells her, uh, God tells Hosea initially to go and take, in verse 2, to take from yourself a, a wife of harlotry, or go take a prostitute for your wife, and she's and children of harlotry. Why? Because the land, that is Israel, has committed great harlotry. They have been unfaithful uh, from, to the Lord. So he went and he married Gomer, not Gomer Pyle. Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceives and bears a son. And then we pick it up in verse 4. The Lord says to Hosea, call his name Jezreel. Now, Jezreel is the, another name for the northern kingdom of Israel. Call his name Jezreel, for in a little while I will avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel. It was a city in the northern part of, uh, of Israel, and it was where... Um, Jehu had carried out uh, his his action. I'll uh, avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel in the house of Jehu and bring an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. So this is all designed to announce the coming judgment on the northern kingdom. He says, It shall come to pass in that day, a, that judgment, that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. That's also the valley of of. Uh, Megiddo uh, that just runs there, the Valley of Esdralon that runs there uh, just to the north of the Carmel Ridge between there and, uh, and the various mountains, Mount Tavor and um, uh, th- those areas, Herod Springs where uh, Gideon thinned out the, 
uh, his 32,000 down to the 300. And then she's going to give birth to a second child, a daughter. That's where I have, I'll pick it up on the slide. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And God said, now call her name Lo-Ruhamah. And because I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel. Now, lo is the Hebrew word for no. Lo is no. We used to have a little rhyme in Hebrew. Lo is no, he is she, and who is he? And that's how you would remember the words. The Hebrew word lo means no. The Hebrew word he is the pronoun for second person feminine singular she. And who is the uh, third-person singular pronoun for he. He is she, who is he, and lo is no. Um, See, now you know some Hebrew. If you don't have anything else out of the class, you at least know that much. So, lo ruhamah, and ruhamah is from the Hebrew word for mercy. So he's, and God is saying, you're going to call her lo ruhamah because I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel, the northern kingdom, but I will utterly take them away. Yet I will have mercy on the house of Judah. This is predicting the invasion of the Assyrians who will defeat and destroy the northern kingdom, but they will only defeat the the southern kingdom to a point, and then when they will shut up Hezekiah like a canary in his cage, then um, uh, God is going to wipe out the Assyrian army, and Sennacherib will go licking his wounds back home, or he'll be assassinated by his children. So, the idea in these verses is is the idea that no, there will be no mercy. Then in verse 8, we read, Now when she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, or no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. Then God said, Call his name Lo-Ami. Now what does Lo mean? No. Lo means no. Ami is, uh, there's a, uh, there's a little saying, Am Israel Chai. Yes, the, 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 the people of Israel. Uh, Am is the word for people. So, Lo Ami means no people. For you are not my people. So, you're going to name the kid, not my people. And I will not be your God. Okay? The I at the end of Ami means my people. So, not my people. So, you've got no, no mercy and not my people. And the other one, Jezreel, because I'm going to bring judgment on Jezreel in the valley of Jezreel. So this is an object lesson to Israel. Now, then we go to Isaiah, Hosea 1.10, and God shows that this is not permanent, that he is once again going to uh, make them his people. He says, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, even though I'm bringing this judgment on them. Uh, they'll be as the sand of the sea, cannot be measured numbered. That goes back to the Abrahamic covenant. And it shall come to pass in the place where it is said to them, you are not my people. There it shall be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. So they're going to shift from being my people to not my people, and then you will become the sons of the living God. Notice that word living God. We're going to look at, in this te- in our text, it talks about the living, the living stone, the living part is what's important. Then if we skip through Hosea chapter 2, in Hosea 2, God says, Then I will sow sow her for myself in the earth, 
and I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. So even though God's going to withdraw mercy and bring judgment on the northern kingdom, and he's going to make them not my people, they are going to be restored to being his people, and they will be uh, restored to mercy. He said, I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. Then I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people, and they shall say, you are my God. So now when we look at verse 10 of First Peter 2.10, who once were not a people but are now the people of God who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy, we see that this is, an, this is a reference, an allusion to Hosea and has direct application to Jewish people, to the remnant, those who are responsive to God's message of grace. Now, if we look at the verse that comes immediately before verse 10, we see verse 9. And in verse 9, there are four ways that these people are identified, and these come out of Exodus chapter 19, verses 6 and 7. And they're called a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and his own special people. And those terms come out of the Old Testament. How do they apply to Jewish background believers who are in the church, in the body of Christ? Now, this passage is often taken as the proof text passage for the universal priesthood of the believer. We'll be looking at that. I think all of these things are said of one way or another of every church-age believer. So I think that there's an implication here of the universal priesthood of the believer. If I was going to uh, defend that doctrine, I wouldn't go here, which is where everybody goes. But everybody who goes here goes here because they think that Peter is writing to Gentiles. See how squirrely this gets? So if he's not writing to Gentiles, he's writing to Jews, for whom this has another meaning, we have to ascertain what this means. We're not going to do that tonight. Verses 7 and 8, these are quotes from Isaiah what, and the Psalms. What Peter does in a remarkable, remarkably sophisticated way, and these three verses are not tied together in any other passage Paul sort of, uh, in sort of a paraphrase, weaves Isaiah 28, 16 and Isaiah 8, 14 together in Romans, but he doesn't add Psalm 118, 22. Now, Psalm 118, 22 ought to be familiar to everybody in here because we've just gone through Psalm 118 in our Matthew series, and we've gone through its quotation twice in... Um, or it's dealt with twice within the context of Jesus last week, and we're in Matthew 22 now. We studied it in Matthew 21. So Peter, is. we see here that there's a conclusion that he draws in verse 7, Therefore to you who believe he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, and then he quotes a verse, Isaiah, uh, I mean from Psalm 118.22, The stone which the builders rejected, has become the chief cornerstone. Now, at the, what we see here is there's a contrast between two groups of people, those who believe, who are obedient, and those who are disobedient. And what he is saying, when he, what he means when he quotes Psalm 118.22 is he's describing and applying a historic event in Psalm 118.22 
to the, those who are disobedient who did not believe or rejected the stone. And then in verse 8, he goes on explaining more about these disobedient ones and this stone. He says it's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Well, that language comes directly out of Isaiah 8.14. So we've got uh, precious from Isaiah 28.16. We have a quote from Psalm 118.22. And we have another quote that comes right out of Isaiah 8.14. So the two quotes, long verse quotes, relate to the disobedient ones, the ones that have rejected the stone. And then as he finishes, he says, they stumble. Now, who are the they? Well, that's a really good question. Are the they, is that just referred to any and everyone who's rejected Jesus as Messiah? Or does the they refer only to Jews who rejected Jesus as Messiah? Well, let's read the rest of that sentence. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. Were Gentiles appointed to the word? No. So the they here, they who stumble, he, he, Peter's clearly talking about the Jews who were the non-remnant, the Jews who rejected Jesus as Messiah. So it's very clear when you're looking at 7 and 8 that when, he, when he's applying these verses to you who believe, he's talking about, he's got to be talking about the believing remnant because those who are disobedient to the word are the unbelieving remnant of Israel. So it's very clear he's, he's alluding to their ethnic past and their historic position in the covenant plan of God. Now, in the previous section, remember, and from there he's going to say, but you are a chosen generation. He's talking to them as the believing remnant. So as far as this goes, I think Arnold is absolutely correct in defining this, that he's, he's, he's reminding these Jews in the body of Christ that they have a heritage in Israel as the believing remnant. It's the next part, the application of that, where, we, where we're going to have a little disagreement, but that's, an, that's something we'll get to. So before 7 and 8, as we're backing our way through the passage, in verse 6, we have another therefore. We have a therefore in verse 6 and a therefore in verse, uh, a therefore in verse 6 and a therefore in verse 7. The therefore in verse 6 is going to be a conclusion that comes out of verses 4 and 5. But it's a, again, it's an allusion to, or it's a direct quote from Isaiah 28, 16. It says, therefore, it's also contained in the scripture. Quote, behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect and precious. And he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Well, how does that relate to what we're talking about? That's the question. So now we go back to the first two verses. We're coming to him, that is Jesus, as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices. Now, that's your purpose clause. So when we get in through all these details, don't get lost. 
he's basically telling them is that you need to grow up so you can offer spiritual sacrifices. And we can think of numerous places in the Scripture where that's true. Uh, Paul ta- uses a little different language, but he's talking about the same thing in, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, that we are uh, to offer our lives as a living sacrifice. It's the same idea, and we're going to see this again and again in Scripture. Believers' are to, our lives are to be an offering or a sacrifice to God. So that's what Peter is saying. So what he is saying to them as Jewish background believers applies to them, certainly, and it has a certain resonance in what he is telling them because of their background, but it equally applies and is expected of every believer, Jew and Gentile. Now let's look at another aspect of this. We're being... um, you as living stones are being built up a spiritual house. That is the, that's the starting point here. We're being built up. We're being edified. That's the main idea. We are to grow by the word in order to mature. So the first thing that we can say about verse 4 and 5 is that the recipients are to be built up. And they have been being built up since they first believed in Jesus as the Messiah. This idea of being built up is a development of that growth idea that Peter had first introduced in verse 2, that we're to be nourished by the milk of the word in order that we may, that we may grow. So that's the, that's the idea. He wants them to grow so that their lives will be a spiritual sacrifice. Now, as we start this and we look at uh, verse 4, the second thing we ought to observe is that this growth, this growing up, uh, being, or being built up into a spiritual house, is the result of their acceptance of Jesus as the Messiah. They came to him as a living stone. And there's about uh, seven things that we need to, I think it's seven, no, eight, nine things that we need to say about this living stone. It is a word that is loaded with Old Testament background and significance if you were Jewish. If you were a Gentile, most of this would would go past you because you didn't know the Old Testament. So let's just run through the different ways in which stone is used and the significance of this. Well, one of the first one of the uh, most important references that's in this passage is Isaiah eight fourteen and 15. This is a reference to the stumbling stone, which is also called the rock of offense or the offensive rock in Isaiah eight fourteen, which reads, He will be a sanctuary, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So it's talking about the Messiah. Then on the one hand, he'll be a sanctuary to some, but to others, he's a stone that they'll stumble over, and he's a rock that they will be offended about. To both the houses of Israel, and he will be a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Now, we're seeing that very clearly in our study on Sunday morning in Matthew 21. In fact, if you're listening to this lesson in First Peter, you ought to be going back and listening to the series in Matthew, at least starting in Matthew 21, going through Matthew 22 and 23. 
we see that Jesus is presented there in the same way as the rock of offense, the stumbling stone. So this is fulfilled in Jesus. A second stone that we find in the Old Testament is one we've already alluded to as well, the rejected cornerstone in Psalm 118.22 that is first rejected as being inconsequential and unnecessary, and then in God's plan, that becomes the chief cornerstone. Now, this is important to understand. We went through Psalm 118 verse by verse over a period of three or four lessons back in May, I believe it was, and we brought out the point that that when you have this term used in the old in in, in the context of Psalm 118, it was a historic reference, a historic reference to a situation in the Old Testament. Now, if you've gone through with me many many times, there's four different ways that the Old Testament is used in the New Testament. The first is you have literal prophecy and you, you have literal fulfillment. Micah 5:2 says that the Messiah is going to be born future. In the future in Bethlehem, uh, Matthew chapter 2 says that he's born in Bethlehem. The second use is a historical reference. This comes out of Hosea 11.1. Out of Egypt I called my son. That is a historic allusion to Israel coming out of Egypt. But it is applied typologically to Jesus so that the uh, family escaped Herod and his attempt to kill the children and go go down to Egypt. And then when they come back, they're, re- sort, as it were, generally retracing the steps of Egypt. And that's when Matthew says in Matthew 2, out of Egypt I called my son. So that historic imagery is applied typologically to Christ. That's the same thing that we have going on here. In Psalm 118, the stone, if you remember, which the builders rejected, is Israel. The builders are the empire builders of the ancient Near East. Uh, The Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Chaldeans, the Medes and the Persians, and they overlook these, these, what in their view is these minor countries and minor uh, kingdoms, and they overrun them. The Assyrians, for example, overran numerous countries, and they resettled their populations all over the Assyrian Empire. They did the same thing with the Jews in the northern kingdom. They took them away, and they resettled them all over, over the empire. Nobody else got brought back home like the Jews did. At the end of the Babylonian captivity, when um, Cyrus the Great is the, uh, the king of Persia, He not only decrees that the Jews will go back home, but he pays for it and for them to go back and to rebuild the city and rebuild the temple. And so Psalm 118 is written as a descriptive praise psalm by the Jews after they have rebuilt the temple, they're dedicating their temple, and they are amazed at the fact that the stone which the empire builders rejected as being meaningless, which is Israel, God in his grace has brought them back into the land and is going to restore them to their place in God's plan and purpose and that they are going to be used by God to crush these empires. So the stone which the builders rejected has become now the chief cornerstone. It's a historic reality. Israel became the chief cornerstone, but it's applied typologically. 
by Peter and by Paul and by Jesus to Jesus as that uh, chief cornerstone. Then the third use of stone is the foundation stone, which is called the tried and precious cornerstone in Isaiah 28:16. Now I want you to look at this verse. The verse says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation. So this is a foundation stone. A tried stone. A precious stone. A sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. Now, it's translated a little differently into the Septuagint, into the Greek. Now, the Septuagint was not an inspired translation. But when New Testament writers quote from the Septuagint without changing it to conform to the Hebrew, then the Septuagint translation, even though it may have been an erroneous translation, it still may communicate truth. And so when the Holy Spirit goes back and takes this wrong translation and includes it into the New Testament, he's putting his stamp of approval on it that it's still true. It's still inerrant, it's still true. But what's interesting is when you look at at this, in the um, uh, in in the original, it uses the term uh, it uses the term expensive instead of a tried stone. It's an expensive stone. Maybe that's the idea of tried here. It's been tested as and it's been appraised and it's valuable. Okay, so it's translated in the Greek as an expensive stone. It's translated at, as precious. And it's translated as a sure foundation. Now, when you look at First First Peter two, the first thing we see in verse four is we see this same language that this is a stone that's rejected by men but chosen by God, and that's not the best translation. And precious, and the word precious is then again picked up in verse uh, verse six. As, as it quotes from Isaiah 28:16 and applies it, uh, that comes from the, from, the, um, from the Septuagint. So that's an important verse. The next rock verse is also from Isaiah, but it refers to the pater, uh, paternal rock. Are we um, uh, as Abraham as the father of the Jewish people? And in Isaiah 51.1, Isaiah writes, or actually God is speaking, Listen to me, you who follow after righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn, and to the hole of the pit from which you were dug. Look to Abraham your father. So this, this view of Abraham as the father, he's the rock out of which they were hewn. But what we're going to see when we get down to uh, a little later on is that ultimately God is the rock that gave birth to them. We'll see that in a couple of passages uh, in the next point in, um, or a couple of points later in Daniel, in uh, Deuteronomy, rather. So Abraham's the paternal rock. Then we have the kingdom rock of Daniel 2.34 and 44-45. Now, I didn't quote Daniel 2.34 because it's the prophecy of the rock that is, it's basically restated in verse 45. Verses 44 and 45 are interpreting 
what Daniel saw at the end of the vision that all these human kingdoms are established and then there's going to be this rock cut without hands that's going to destroy them. Now, what does that mean? Well, it's interpreted in verses 44 and 45. In the days of these kings, that is, when, when these empires have, have, have all, they have a cumulative nature to them. And so they all are brought back. Remember, in Revelation, there are elements of each of these kings that are present in that final kingdom of the Antichrist. He's got the uh, um, wings of an eagle and the face of an ox and, or a leopard and four leopard heads, and he has uh, uh, something else like a lion. All of those come together, which are elements of these different kingdoms that are found as they're expressed in Daniel 7. So in Daniel 2.44, in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. So we're talking about the indestructible kingdom, which is the messianic kingdom in the future. He will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you, Nebuchadnezzar, saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, which was uh, Babylon, the bronze, which was uh, Persia, uh, the clay, the silver, the gold, all of these things. Oh, the iron was Rome, the bronze was Greece, the, the clay that was in there, and then the silver were the Medes and the Persians, and the gold was Babylon. The great God is made known to the king, which we will come to pass after this. So the rock is the kingdom. The kingdom of the Messiah is going to destroy all these human kingdoms. That's the depiction there in Daniel 2, 44 and 45. So the rock then is an image of the messianic kingdom as well as the Messiah. Then the sixth is uh, Jerusalem is depicted as a heavy stone in Zechariah 12, 3. It shall happen in that day, that is, in the end of the tribulation period, that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone. This is actually, yeah, Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples. All who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces, though all the nations are gathered against it. That's in the campaign of Armageddon. And they come against Jerusalem, and that's when the Messiah returns and destroys the enemies. Then the seventh is... The reference to God, the Rock, Deuteronomy thirty-two four. He is the Rock. His work is perfect. So this is a a metaphor here. He is the Rock. His work is perfect. All his ways are justice. A God of truth, without injustice, righteous and upright. So this explains that metaphor. That Rock indicates uh, perfection, justice, truth, righteousness. And then in verse eighteen of chapter thirty-two, Moses says to the people of the Rock who begot you. See, in Isaiah, it's Abraham, but that's the human who begot the nation, the people of Israel. But this is God who begot them. Of the rock who begot you, you are unmindful and have forgotten the God who fathered you. Now, the eighth thing I want to mention is that in the second temple period, the term rock or stone had become an accepted reference to the Messiah. It's a messianic title. So when we see that, it's clearly used of God. We saw that back here in Deuteronomy 32, 4 and 18. But by the second temple period, it's understood that this rock is a term for the Messiah and his kingdom. 
And under the ninth point, Jesus clearly alludes to this in this famous conversation with Peter in Matthew sixteen eighteen. Now, this is important because Peter, who's in this conversation with Jesus in Matthew 16, is the same Peter who writes First Peter. And so he clearly understands who the rock is and who the rock uh, focuses on. So I, ju- I don't have all the verses in the slide, but I do have the first two and the last two. And the first two we see that Jesus takes the disciples up to Caesarea Philippi, which is in the north, and he says to them, well, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Uses a messianic title there, the Son of Man. Says, okay, who, who do people say that I am? And so they're knocking it around. They say, well, some people say you're John the Baptist. Some people say you're Elijah. Others say you're Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And then Jesus is going to say in verse, verse 15, uh, well, who do you say that I am? And then Peter answers in verse 16. Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Messiah, the Christos, HaChristos, HaMashiach in the Hebrews, the Messiah, the Son of the... And notice again we have that Son of the living God. We keep having this reference to living as opposed to the dead idols of stone and wood and metal. You're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said, Blessed are you, Simon, son of John, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter. And I also say to you that you are Peter, Petros, which means a rock. And then he says, and on this rock, Petra. And people have all kinds of interpretations of this. He's talking about that he's going to build a church on Peter. He's not building the church on Peter. And on this rock, this identification of Jesus as a Messiah, no, that's not what he's saying. He's talking about himself. He's the rock. He's the rock. He's the cornerstone. He is that foundation stone that, that Isaiah talks about. He is God, the rock, that Moses talked about. He's the rock. So he says, on this rock, he's referring to himself. I will build my church. He's the foundation stone. You build something on the foundation He's talking about himself, and he says, And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And then he says to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, the keys to the kingdom of heaven is the gospel. It's the gospel. Those who believe are going to be saved. Those who don't believe in Jesus Messiah will not. And he says, Whatever you bind on earth will have already been bound in heaven. Heaven has announced that those who do not believe in Jesus as a Messiah will not be saved. Those who do believe will be saved. So whatever you bind... Uh, you bind those who are going to go to heaven. It's already been determined in heaven. Those who believe will be saved. Whatever you loose on earth, that is those you let go. Uh, these are the ones who've rejected Messiah. They will be loosed in heaven. Why? Because the decree was whoever believes will be saved, and those who don't believe will not. John uh, 3.18. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So we have this reference, these references to the stone, and we have passages in the Old Testament that constantly talk about God as the living God. As Joshua is giving his pep talk to the Israelites before they uh, go into the land, he says, by this you shall know that the living God is among you. You're going to drive out all the enemies in the land. Jeremiah 10.10 
Jeremiah said, but the Lord is the true God. He's the living God and the everlasting king. At his wrath, the earth will tremble. The nations will not be able to endure his indignation. Psalm 42, 2, the psalmist says, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. And then in the New Testament, Paul says to uh, Timothy in 1 Peter, for to this end we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, unlimited atonement, especially of those who believe. So with that, we've come to an understanding of this beginning of this important section dealing with what we have in Christ, as especially for those who are Jewish background believers. It has a greater resonance for them, doesn't give them more, it just has more significance more meaning because they have the Old Testament promises and covenants as a reminder of who and what they were supposed to have accomplished uh, in the Old Testament period. Coming to him as a living stone. Next time we'll talk about this. Rejected among men, uh, but chosen by God and precious. We'll begin there next Thursday night. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to be reminded that all of Scripture is integrated together. And we see this done in a remarkable and sophisticated way by Peter in this passage, and it helps us to understand the fullness of who Jesus is and all that we have in the body of Christ, and that we have been truly been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen.